I have a friend who is supremely accomplished at making vegan baked goods. Let's call him Mirage because that is in fact his name. Hey Mirage. If you've ever tried to make a Victoria sponge or Mary Berry's lemon drizzle whizzle or uh, I don't know some moist but super light and airy blueberry muffins but without using any eggs, milk, cream, butter, buttermilk you may have realized what a fiendishly difficult task this is to accomplish. Which is why, at least in my parts of the world, you don't see many vegan baked goods about. And if you do, even though they're edible and have something similar to the mouthfeel of cake, you're unlikely to experience that sort of confectionery taste bud nirvana of the animal product laden goodies. Mirage, however, has the magic touch in this department. He really does. Mirage, you are a vegan baking god, <laughs> and, and you know it. But that's also what makes your stuff, Mirage, guilt-free, at least for me. Well, of course I'll have another slice of your passion fruit and pistachio cake, Mirage, even though it's packed with cocaine, aka sugar, but only because no animals were harmed in the making of it. In fact, I might even have a third slice, thank you very much, greedy creature that I am. I had been encouraging Mirage for years to turn his full-time hobby into a part-time side hustle, and eventually he did just that, setting up a wee vegan baked goods stall at his local farmer's market. Mirage at the time was living in Barnes, which is this really beautiful little village just on the outskirts of South London near the Thames and Richmond Park, a place that is often referred to by its largely white and moneyed denizens as the Hampstead of South London. It's one of those, you know, all's right with the world spots where middle and upper class foodies wouldn't bat an eyelid at paying a fiver or more for a small slice of cake as long as that small slice of cake is mouth-wateringly good. Which, of course, all of Mirage's cakes and buns and biscuits and brownies truly are. So, suffice to say, after about a month of him taking his wares out on a Saturday morning to Barnes Farmer's Market, Mirage was becoming a little bit of a local vegan hero in those quarters, as well as further afield, and not just for the vegans. And so when he got featured in both the timeout list of best vegan bakeries worth your dough, get it? Haha. <laughs> as well as on Jay Rayner's Instagram saying that Mirage's cakes were the only vegan cake he would allow past his buttered smeared lips. Well, at that point, this guy becomes a bona fide superstar, as well as starting to make so much coin from his vegan side hustle that he's able to bring mum, dad and a whole bunch of aunties and uncles over for an extra special grey and drizzly British vegan Christmas. I had yet to visit my friend's award-winning cake stall as Barnes is on the very opposite side of London to me and I often work on Saturdays. 
But as winter turned into spring, I decided to reschedule one Saturday's worth of appointments and make the trip over, along with Maxi Jacks, to check out Mirage's organic vegan baked goods empire. Which he, alongside a bunch of baking nerds, had single-handedly built from scratch to preeminence in a matter of months. Mirage suggested I perhaps come on a day when Barnes holds its annual spring festival with its cutesy but largely pale-skinned village fair vibe held on the green near the famous Duck Pond and Art Centre. On this day of the year, the whole swanky place comes alive with lots of music and poetry readings as well as other artsy-fartsy stuff which both of us really enjoy. Mirage and I had met a few years before at the Poetry School in London where we did this course called, what was it called? Carnival and the Masks of Bacchanal with um, Fawzia Kane, which was all about writing poetry through a kind of persona or mask with the aim of losing in the process the shackles of the self. The plan on that Saturday was for me to arrive late in the morning, hang out with him a bit at his stall, and then the two of us would have brunch together and head off to the Spring Festival. Thanks to our current ecological crisis, the day dawned sunny and preternaturally warm. I think I may have even opted for some linen Bermuda shorts and a t-shirt, such was the incandescent brightness and jubilance, you might say, of that spring day. A day, in the words of Billy Collins, so perfect, so uplifted by a warm, intermittent breeze that it made you want to throw open all the windows in the house and unlatch the door to the canary's cage. Indeed, rip the little door from its jam. A day when the cool brick paths and the garden bursting with peonies seemed so etched in sunlight that you felt like taking a hammer to the glass paperweight on the living room end table, releasing the inhabitants from their snow-covered cottage so that they could walk out holding hands and squinting into this larger dome of blue and white. Well, that spring day, a couple of years before Covid, was indeed just that kind of day. Also, after a seemingly interminable winter, in which as usual I'd found myself having to crawl on hands and knees through, even with the assistance of my green girlfriend in the evenings, this sunny, springy Saturday was just what I needed, and maybe what we all needed, as all of London seemed to be on that day in euphorically good spirits. Um, you know, happy and energized, as we sometimes downcast Londoners can get on truly beautiful and blossoming days. When I arrived in the late morning at Barnes Farmer's Market, Mirage was in the process of selling his last few goodies, and so we had plenty of time to chat and catch up. We were both single at the time, 
myself and Miraj, him on the dating apps, me joining book clubs and walking groups and other meetup options in the hope of finding someone offline. Both of us were struggling to meet soulful, smart, switched-on women who had any interest in us. But on that warm and blooming Saturday, I truly believe that there must have been some kind of spring magic in the air. For whilst we were chatting and drinking coffee, a woman stopped by to stock up on some vegan cheesecake and a few of Mirage's mythical chocolate brownies, which somehow, God knows how, managed to be both low in sugar as well as tasting better than anything chocolate flavoured that might ever pass your lips. And maybe because, you know, everyone was in such a good mood on this beautiful day, the three of us got to talking. Mirage's loyal customer was Polish, which is an accent and a people and a culture that I've always loved. My family, bar my parents' generation, were all bona fide Lithuanian Polish peasants. And there seems to be something in my soul, for want of a better word, that resonates with other working class Eastern European human creatures. Those creatures who, who know and understand at a phenomenological and maybe even at a, at a genetic level what it's like to be at the very bottom of the heap and to have to claw your way just a few strata up. Nadia, this is the name I'm going to call her, was trying to get Mirage to reveal some of his vegan baking secrets in a very sweet and charming way. And Mirage, being the sweetie pie that he is, but also the more outspoken and bold one in matters of Eros than I, suggested that she and her flatmate come and join us on the green later for some chats and to listen to some music together. She was hesitant, but I think the promise of being able to get some more baking tips from my pal, as well as to hang out with my darling boy Maxi Jacks, sealed the deal. Maxie took to Nadia like a heroin addict to a syringe full of opiates. I love you, I love you, I love you, please be my mummy forever and ever, please, 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 that kind of thing. Nadia revealed to us that she was more of a cat than a dog person, but Max, and I know I'm biased here, uh, is, I assure you, in a class of his own, being the sweetest, bounciest, most loving creature on God's planet. And of course, <laughs> Nadia was going to be into him right from the start. Everyone is. When she left with her baked goods, I asked Mirage if he had the hots for Nadia, as I certainly had, and he explained that, no, she wasn't really his type, but he'd clocked my interest in her, and who knows, maybe her Polish flatmate would make it a kind of fun, double date, even though at that point, I reminded him, both of them would most likely have boyfriends, but hey, you know, worth a shot. And I was clearly already half smitten by this beautiful, funny and sweet creature called Nadia. So a couple of hours later, we found ourselves sitting with Nadia and Alexandra on a blanket in Barnes Green. Although Nadia's flatmate was lovely, and it transpired that both she and Nadia were currently single, hooray, it soon became apparent that Mirage wouldn't be much of a match for Alexandra, as she was, and presumably still is, the daughter of a Catholic deacon, and backed this up by telling us quite quickly into our conversation how important her faith and religious community and barns had been for her when she'd arrived in the UK a few years before. 
Nadia worked as a merchandiser at Sainsbury's HQ in Hoban, but was also in training to be a person-centered therapist. And when she heard that this was my profession, her interest in me palpably expanded. The four of us soon got to talking about love languages, and just for fun, we all reached for our phones to do the quick test, which I'll include in the show notes if you'd like to try it out yourself. This revealed that in romantic relationships, Nadia's main preference in a partner was for someone very skilled at giving and, I don't know, presumably receiving, acts of service, whereas my love language focused largely around words of affirmation. Alexandra and Mirage had very similar love language profiles, both valuing acts of service and also quality time. Although the no sex before marriage aspect of Alexandra's religious faith wasn't going to make their love language compatibility much of a goer for either of them, alas. As we had our phones out and were enjoying this getting to know you way of interacting, Nadia suggested we look at some personality typologies too, an area that she was interested in at the time, especially a system called the Enneagram. I'd never heard of the Enneagram, and I asked if it was anything like Myers-Briggs. In that typological structure, both of us scored as snowflake INFPs. To which she explained that no, the Enneagram was a little bit more all-encompassing than Myers-Briggs, having roots that went deep into ego and self-psychology, object relations theory, spiritual and esoteric systems, as well as setting out a developmental path for self-growth and flourishing. It was also backed up, she claimed, by science, especially infant research, and told us how in the 1970s Alexander Thomas and Stella Chess had carried out a whole series of longitudinal studies which demonstrated that very young children, 3 to 18 months old, fell into nine different somatic patterns, which would then sort of grow into our personality styles, and these seemed to be consistent across the adult human lifespan. What can I say? I found all of this fascinating and was instantly bowled over by her intellect and native speaker English proficiency. Longitudinal studies, somatic patterns, wow. I also registered how her values and interests, as well as her outlook on life, so closely mirrored my own. Before we did the test, Nadia guessed that I was a hard type, a four, which meant that my chief operating system functioned on emotional energy. Mirage, she also guessed correctly, was a nine, like herself and Alexandra, which put them into a somewhat different category according to the Enneagram, that of a gut or a body-led processing system. She also explained how the three operating systems of the Enneagram, body, heart, mind, and the way that our personality styles would fall predominantly into one or the other, was based on developmental patterns. We all start out as bodies, babies, with those very primitive needs of the body. And then, quite quickly, we develop a relational capacity, the heart, and then only much later, those more refined cognitive skills. Anyway, it all made sense to me. And and it kind of made me smile thinking about, you know, 
a, this kind of numeral four in shorts and a t-shirt sitting with three nines on the village green as we sipped at our ciders and enjoyed some of the reggae floating out of the sound system. Nadia also explained how each personality type, each archetype, has two wings. Personality, like everything else, is on a continuum, and it seems as if we lean a little bit more into one of our typology neighbors rather than the other. As an example, she explained that although her dominant personality style was that of a body type 9, her more active wing was of the archetypal 8. Just like the poet Arthur Rambo, who I built episode two of this podcast around. Nines are accepting, trusting, and stable. They want everything to go smoothly and be without conflict, but they can also tend to be complacent, simplifying problems and minimizing anything upsetting. They typically have problems with inertia and stubbornness. Eights are self-confident, strong, and assertive, protective, resourceful, straight-talking, and decisive. Eights feel they must control their environment, especially people. Eights typically have problems with their tempers and with allowing themselves to be vulnerable. Nadia's other wing, the Enneagram One personality style, turns their anger and frustration at the world into hair-splitting, nitpicking, and fault-finding, both with themselves and others. I found all of this fascinating, although Weirdly enough, other than this initial conversation, Nadia and I hardly ever referred to the Enneagram again in our subsequent dealings. Darkness was descending quite quickly on the village festivities, and by about 4.30 it was getting cold and overcast, so we packed up the picnic blanket that Nadia had brought along for us to sit on and bid each other farewell. I gave her my phone number just in case she might want to keep in touch or if she'd like to have a sounding board for further training or something else connected to her studies. I don't think I expected to hear from her because even though the day had felt incredibly romantic and exciting for me and Max, it felt almost like a kind of romantic comedy where, you know, director Mirage had cast me in the role of Hugh Grant, uh, hence no doubt the film's failure at the box office. Why would this incredible, delightful person want to hang out with me? At this point in my life, I hadn't had a relationship or any kind of romantic connection with anyone for about three years. And so even though I had visions of Hugh Grant in maybe that film about a boy popping into my mind, um, especially with Max in the picture, my general sense of myself as a love object was fairly diminished at this point and not especially hopeful. Nadia, in my eyes, was so beautiful and sweet and kind and funny that I could genuinely imagine her with a Barnesian Hugh Grant fellow, plenty of that type around in in this part of the world. But much to my surprise and delight, Nadia texted me about a week later asking if I ever listened to a podcast that she loved called This Jungian Life. And indeed I did. And somehow from this initial chat, we began to send each other voice notes, which Nadia, I think, sort of tolerated with the forbearance of an Enneagram 9, although she largely preferred text. Suffice to say, this led to further visits to Barnes and and we began dating. On a hot 
first relationship in my life where everything right from the start at least for me felt spot on this was exactly the person i wanted to be with and how wonderful to have this reciprocated and even better nadia seemed fairly relaxed and accepting about my you know use of cannabis Although, if she hadn't been, I most certainly would have, sorry, green one, broken up with that love object, as cannabis at this point had served its purpose. Um, I didn't really need it in the way that I needed it before. It had given me a year of love and tenderness and fun, and, and I was now getting all of that with Nadia, at least on the weekends, because that's mainly when we saw each other. There were no magic spells you can keep the flowers and bells They just don't seem right Can it actually be Me and you and you and me But we're like day and night Listen now I'm not saying that there will be violence But don't be surprised if they Gigi, as I like to call her, uh, green goodness, green goddess, gave some of our frolics and added intoxicating spin. But at that point, my tolerance was already quite high, and the spin was probably not much more intense than a glass or two of wine. We got stoned a couple of times together, but it wasn't really her thing. For certain personality types, anything that threatens one's sense of absolute control can feel, well, a little threatening. But one of the beautiful traits of the Enneagram 9 personality style, which is also why so many of my previous partners have been 9, I now realise, is that Nadia 9 was by and large a live-and-let-live type. I also assumed, not knowing what I know now about Enneagram 9, that if Nadia had had a problem with my green girlfriend or anything else that was bothering her about the relationship, she would have spoken up about it and communicated this to me in the way that our shared religion, psychotherapy, had trained us to do. Even if it made us feel a bit vulnerable or required us to both acknowledge and take ownership for the more shadowy, not so lovely aspects of our ego functioning, even if it required lots of talking or even, you know, some openly expressed disagreement in order to arrive together at that win-win that every couple needs to have in order to continue being in relationship with each other. And of course, <laughs> like all romantic fools, I saw no reason why we couldn't make things work. When you are in love, or however else you may describe this heady hormonal state, nothing, absolutely nothing seems truly unworkable or a real issue. Everything is resolvable and blissfully, hopefully, possible. Until it isn't. 
something in the way she moves Or looks my way or calls my name That seems to leave this troubled world behind and If I'm feeling down and blue Or troubled by some foolish game She always seems to make me change my mind I feel fine anytime she's around me now She's around me now Almost all the time And if I'm well you can tell That she's been with me now She's been with me now Quite a long, long time and I feel fine Every now and then the things I lean on lose the meaning And I find myself careening In places where I should not let me go She has the power to go Where no one else can find me Yes, and to silently remind me Of the happiness and good times that I know well, I said I just got to know them It isn't what she's got to say Or how she thinks or where she's been To me the words are nice The way they sound I'd like to hear them best that way It doesn't much matter what they mean but she says they're mostly just to calm me down and I feel fine anytime she's around me now but She's around me now Almost all the time and If I'm well you can tell that she's been with me now She's been with me now Quite a long, long time Yes, and I feel fine